thank you, everybody. Thank you for your patience. I had some misinformation. I, I was under the impression that I was leading this tomorrow. So appreciate your, uh, your flexibility with us. As I said, my name is Greg Kruger, I'm founding partner and chief operating, operating officer for Dream Nutrition. And we're an Indiana-based veteran-owned hemp nutrition company. Um, we are exhibiting out there, so I don't really need to get into any of that. Um, we have a great panel here. And um, rather than me trying to give you their information, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Um, and they'll keep it brief and kind of what your guys' specialty is. Um, because a lot of people out here are here for networking. So if you guys could let everybody know um, what you specialize in. Yeah. Does this work? There we go. So I'm Jake Black, and I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Treehouse Biotech, um, where I kind of lead a team of uh, chemists and biochemists and an R&D effort, uh, pioneering different cannabinoids and isolations and formulations. And then um, we also do like wholesale uh, production and manufacturing of different um, hemp oils and hemp-derived ingredients. Um, James Schwartz, uh, Cascade High. We are a cannabis cultivation company in Oregon. Um, I'm a nurse by trade and have been growing cannabis for 20 years uh, and really have approached the CBD market from, from that standpoint that it really opens doors for people. Uh, but the, the true beauty and science of, of this plant really is in whole plant medicine. So while I, I love the CBD aspect, we really need to be able to open people's minds with CBD and then and move them to whole plant and get the whole country on that. My name is Dan Gustafik. I'm the founder of Hybrid Tech and Geochorus more recently. Um, we lead an engineering team of about 30-something plus people to uh, do cannabis and hemp projects across the U.S. and Canada through Hybrid Tech and Geochorus is brand new. Uh, basically, we have access from the last you know, 150 projects to um, hemp seeds and a lot of other stuff that we're starting to uh, distribute. Hi, I'm Blake Ebersole. I, I'm actually here, uh, right here in Indy. Uh, I've been working in the food and dietary supplement and cannabis and hemp industries for the past 15 years, uh, mostly as a technical consultant, uh, handling quality and regulatory uh, product development and, and research efforts. So it's great to just be able to uh, drive 20 minutes down, down the road and, and, and be here. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, so as, as you guys know, the, real, the topic of this conversation is the difference between hemp-derived and cannabis-derived CBD. Um, as we get into this, with this question, I think this panel would agree that, that is a, that's an answer that can be summed up very, very quickly, and we would need to have a 45-minute discussion. So instead, what we thought would be great is because we have varying positions and specialties within the industry, we can take a look at what the difference is between maybe the cannabinoids and CBD that you might find in hemp versus cannabis. And when we say cannabis, we're talking high THC containing cannabis because hemp is also cannabis, right? And the difference really is low THC containing. So one's intoxicating and one's not. So is there a difference between deriving your CBD from one plant or the other? So I guess what the real difference is, is there a difference in CBD from hemp and CBD from um, cannabis? Yeah, and from a pure scientific standpoint, the molecule CBD is the same no matter where it's derived from. Cannabis, hemp, even if it's made in you know, yeast, there's people doing that. Um, if it's synthesized in a lab, the molecule CBD by itself isolated is always the same. Everything else comes on the back end, mostly with regulation and the difference between the plant um, from a uh, you know regulatory standpoint. So that's short answer. Anybody want to add on that? So I'll just jump in. Really, hemp and cannabis are the same plant. They're cannabis sativa L. So just to to really cl make the picture clear for everybody right off the bat, this is the same plant. The government has created nomenclature to be able to separate these two out um, because of that THC molecule that now provides this euphoric intoxicating effect that uh, is used in a much different format oftentimes than the healing properties of CBD. Uh, what I will say about <clears throat> CBD molecule in general, a synthetically derived versus a plant-derived CBD molecule is going to vary very minimally slightly, but those minimal slight differences actually 
have a difference. And I'll, uh, an example of that, and maybe Jake can speak to this in something that he's seen as well, but I've seen manufacturers who will get a 98% pure CBD product and it will work absolutely fabulously. They'll take it up to a 99% pure CBD product and suddenly they start losing effectiveness. And the reason they're losing effectiveness is those minor cannabinoids that are on a microscopic nanotype level actually make a difference in the endocannabinoid system and how your body is, is both ingesting and, and allowing that therapeutic potential of the CBD to work. So I really don't mind a synthetic CBD molecule, but we know that synthetic molecules that are trying to mimic true cannabinoids don't work in the same way. We saw that same effectiveness or lack thereof in Marinol or Dronabinol, those pharmaceutical synthetically derived cannabinoids that we've used in healthcare for 30 years. And I guess kind of to address that specific thing from a, the chemistry side of things, I would say that those, you know, in, if you synthesize CBD, we'll say, you will end up with some X amount of impurities, so there's no, nothing is ever 100% pure in, in reality. And so if you're extracting it, then you can have leftover residual, what chemists would call impurities, but in this case, it's because it's coming from extracts, you know, there might be a little bit of other cannabinoids or isomers of the specific CBD, and so the purity might not be identical, and that may contribute to some of the different, I guess, effects medicinally from a synthesized molecule. But if you're like, are comparing CBD cannabidiol to just CBD cannabidiol, it, in the purest form of both, hemp-derived or synthesized, they should be the same. But if there's impurities, terpenes, cannabinoids at a small amount, then those could have a... Um, you know, increased or different medical effect, but that's to get real technical. Yeah, and, and you know, there's some interesting points brought up here because um, particularly in this industry that's, you know, a little more nascent and, and young and, you know, we're still struggling to, to, to figure out the terminology, you know, and, and, and as you pointed out, um, you know, cannabis sativa is the species of the plant from which uh, both the hemp type as well as the marijuana type are derived. And so historically you have uh, the hemp uh, type that's grown in temperate regions and grown northern, and you have the the intoxicating type of cannabis that's that's grown in, in tropical regions. And you know, over time, with uh, you know trade and and, and uh, development of, of of both, we've had the, the intermixing, right? And so nobody told that told hemp that that it couldn't breed with marijuana. And so you have all these intermediate types that also give you different ratios of uh, CBD to THC and uh, you know different other compounds too. And so you get a lot of <clears throat> obviously uh, confusion because you know these these two types are breeding with each other, and then you also have uh, modern breeding practices where you're trying to to, to improve uh, certain traits. And so you have the traditional hemp type, which is the 10 foot high uh, stalk that's used for fiber, uh, but now you have these that are bred to uh, uh, sp specifically to express high <laughs> amounts of CBD. And so along with CBD, you have this. Uh, a very structurally similar uh, identical molecular weight compound called THC. And so when you, often when you overexpress CBD, you're, you're overexpressing CB, uh, THC as well. And so a lot of these challenges obviously around the, the regulatory requirement and the definitions around marijuana versus hemp, you have uh, a lot of activity to try to both maximize uh, the CBD content and improve yields while still keeping your THC below, below 0.3%. Yes, thank you. So, um, since we're talking about hemp-derived CBD here, and, we're, and we are bringing in cannabis as well, um, we're talking about different cultivars and changing, changing ratios, but we're also talking about other cannabinoids and terpene profiles. So there's a lot of, a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, I want the real stuff, right? I want CBD from the real stuff. But my question would be, is cannabis, since we know cannabis is cannabis, um, are you seeing, what do you see as the difference in maybe CBD levels or different uh, cannabinoid or terpene levels in what would be classified legally as hemp versus cannabis? It, 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 um, you guys are probably closer to the, uh, to the agricultural side than I am, I'm more on the, the, the end side, but 
you know, I see all, all ranges. And then obviously you have what's, what's produced by the plant. Uh, and then downstream you have uh, uh, changes or uh, um, in, uh, based on processing, based on uh, how you extract it, how you formulate it. Um, so there's a lot of points along the, the development of, of a particular product that includes the plant itself and then down the line. Yeah, and, and I would say that it's kind of like, at this point, hemp is grown all over the country in different regions, you know, um, and different strains of that hemp. And so I think a useful metaphor for the audience maybe is thinking about, you know, breeds of dog. Like, all dogs are canines. They're all genetically that species. But like a pug and a Rottweiler are very different animals. And so in the same way, hemp is all, hemp, cannabis, whatever, is all the same species. But if it's grown in, you know, Kentucky for 10 years and then one's grown in Oregon for 10 years, you're going to get a very different species. And after, you know, hundreds of years, these things can even propagate further. So at this point, you know, every strain, even from within a field, if you're testing different plants against each other or across the country or the world, you're going to see crazy variants in different cannabinoids and terpene levels. Like a lot of the same cannabinoids are there. It's THC, CBD, CCBG, CBC. Um, those are the big ones, some CBN, which is a degradation product, but you see all of those. Like in general, those five are there, but the levels of those, there's infinite permutations, combinations of those. And so um, then as you start processing, as you mentioned, it changes even further. And so um, it's, it's kind of up for debate of if you extract one batch of hemp and make oils from it, and then you extract a completely different batch and don't do any kind of um, homogenizing to make them the same, like you're getting, you know, every product could be different in that sense, so. So from an agricultural standpoint in Oregon, I can have my farm and this side is designated OLCC, liquor controlled cannabis, and this is ODA regulated hemp, <clears throat> but I have plants that could be on, that can be on both sides. So I grow a canatonic that's approximately 17% CBD and less than 0.3% THC. When I grow that plant in my OLCC garden, that is a regulated cannabis product that can only flow through the OLCC licensed businesses. But if I grow that same canatonic on an ODA hemp side of things, now I can put that into an ODA market and ship it all across the state if I'd or all across the country if I'd like to. Um, so there, there really is no difference. The difference actually comes from the agricultural process that you use, whether it be regional or uh, a light depth greenhouse or an outdoor or an indoor grown product. I think for the most part that any sort of indoor cultivation hemp is gonna go away. It's just far too costly to, to produce a, a plant that's generally on a, on a market of about 10 to $50 a pound uh, is, is just not cost feasible to grow indoors. Uh, you can get away with it in, in greenhouses, but primarily this is an outdoor product. I think then the other thing that we should make sure we bring into this is uh, hemp is cultivated for two kind of primarily different reasons. One, you've got the industrial textile side of things, which is going to be your your paper, your ropes, and, and, and clothing and that kind of stuff. And then you've got your, your hemp that you're using for CBD uh, extraction. Um, and so you've got this broad cannabis plant. Generally, it's just nomenclature created by the government so that they can understand it. And then in the hemp world, you've got it subdivided into, is this a textile plant or is it um, you know, being used for therapeutic CBD? The last part of that is oftentimes a lot of people say, well, hemp is just the male plant of, of cannabis. That's not true either. Most of the time, in fact, Jake works with all flower uh, hemp. That's fairly unusual, but to be able to get consistency in your products, which is kind of what he talked about, you, you have to be able to kind of regulate what that is. But even in my garden, in my one particular room, if I have a plant in a corner that's not getting as much light, or this plant is at the front of a, of a feeding irrigation line, you can get those different profiles. Even though they're the same plant grown in the same room at the same time, the variability of the plant and how it uptakes nutrients and turns that into cannabinoids can vary dramatically. Um, and so that's a, most of the time why 
manufacturers homogenize as best they can. So in the end, what we're hearing is, oh, go ahead. So my cannabis can't leave the state of Oregon. Okay. Um, so cannabis, because it's an illegal plant still, uh, and yes, we've approved it for the state, anytime it now moves beyond the state, you're breaking federal law. Okay. So, <clears throat> so every plant that I have on my uh, cannabis side of my farm is metriced, which means it's being tracked through the state regulatory software. Uh, and that plant material cannot leave the state versus ODA hemp as once it's been certified and, and you've got the COA, now it can, it can move all across the country. Yeah, so basically the or, oil is primarily coming from the hemp plant versus what you're so, yeah, yeah, so so one way to look at that too, I think, is to understand when you have a product that's a controlled substance federally, so even when states legalize um, cannabis, it's still federally illegal. Um, but there was what started the hemp side of it was the 2014 Farm Bill, which started a pilot program for research. Okay, but that designated the low THC, THC being the cannabinoid that causes intoxication. So I think what what the big thing was was now with the 2018 Farm Bill, hemp is no longer a controlled substance, right? So I think what what you see is the industry knows that in cannabis, whether it's called hemp or whether it's called cannabis. Regardless of the THC content, the cannabinoids and terpene profiles within that plant, um, they're the same chemicals in different uh, volumes and mixtures, right? So, so with that being said, then we have a lot of people that are, we know, understand now that the cannabinoids are the same, whether it's from hemp or from cannabis. So in the farming aspect, we know it's going to take a lot more volume and mass so you got to grow a lot more biomass to get the extraction from hemp, right? So then the question is, and this would be really more towards Dan, I think, here, is then is there a difference in the extraction and processing side of things um, with hemp versus cannabis? And is what, what's, what is it important for maybe consumers to know if there's anything in there? Um, sure, that's a good question. Uh, Cannabis and hemp systems, we've worked on both. The cannabis systems tend to be quite a bit smaller just because of the volume. So cannabis is normally done through, again, a state-regulated program. Um, well, not normally, it, it is, excuse me. Um, so similar to like Oregon, uh, what James is saying, you've got the product coming out in um, much smaller quantities due to the fact that the consumption audience is normally limited to a single state. Uh, this is going to change, obviously, a little bit. In California, we're seeing slightly larger extractors. We've got a couple there that can do almost two tons a day. Um, we're working on right now, so that's pretty big for cannabis. That's actually the biggest we've seen so far. But hemp systems, uh, we have clients right now uh, doing up to six tons a day. Uh, those systems are currently being worked on right away. So at some point in the next year and a half, when those come to fruition, the hemp systems have nearly identical process trains, which process trains like all the components that fit together, um, except in the hemp process, there's just one additional phase. So like if you looked at two process train diagrams for cannabis here and hemp here, you would see one that is um, basically nearly identical, except for smaller, same components. Um, just, let's just pretend we're talking about ethanol. On this side, you see one extra phase called THC remediation. That's it. So the difference is the, uh, the stock that's going in, obviously on the hemp side, um, <laughs> Well, I guess it's not really a difference. Many of our clients had cannabis before the farm bill that became hemp. So a lot of people actually even banked on that by, um, actually one of our groups is amazing. They have uh, 30,000 pounds of uh, previously known as cannabis seeds that they were banking on turning into hemp seeds, which just happened. And their hemp seed is an amazingly high, uh, I think it's 18%, um, not by total biomass, but you know, flour, or no, 23, I'm sorry, 23%, I got that wrong. Total biomass, I think it's down to 9%. Um, those are two different numbers you also hear a lot. I love, it's kind of a bit of a game. People should call it just biomass percentage, like the total biomass of the plant when you're measuring and weighing it, 9% of it's CBD. But a lot of people want to change that and say, if you just take the flower off, what's the percentage? Which no one's really, you know, it's not quite genuine. Anyways, that's the difference between the two process. The THC remediation phase can also be done in uh, many different manners. But that's the only part you'll see besides, of course, normally the much, much larger because 
on the hemp side, we have you know, grinding systems, bale breakers. Um, people are basically putting in a nitrogen-packed bales in the field. They're immediately packing those bales into a storage area. They're running it through a grinder, and then they're processing the entire thing, and they're doing it tons per day. So there's just normally a difference in complexity of systems. One has far more automation. One has uh, a lot of people. <laughs> just a lot of people uh, picking things up and putting them over here and then turning on the grinder and then picking up the column and putting it over you know. So there's a lot more manual labor normally in the cannabis sector. To, I was going to add to, like, again, for the audience, the reason you need that THC remediation, which may not be clear to everyone, is you can grow industrial hemp, or you know, hemp, as we're calling it, with less than 0.3% THC by content. That's legal. That's great. But as soon as you extract it, that THC level goes above that 0.3%. And now you're dealing with a product that would be regulated as marijuana. So if you're going to sell it to anyone, anywhere, it has to have below 0.3% THC. Otherwise, you're selling a marijuana product, and the DEA is not happy about that. So that's why the THC remediation process has to be done. Just chime in real quick, and then maybe we want to answer some questions directly. Um, so in general, we see about a factor of 10 when you extract and concentrate. So that 0.3% THC usually ends up at about 2.5 to 3. Um, so for those business owners out there who are sourcing material, <clears throat> if you're looking at raw crude oil, so that'll be not your full isolate where you've already remediated the THC. Raw crude is generally hot. Some people are comfortable shipping hot oil around. Um, it is technically illegal. I think that there are many lawyers who would be happy to take that case, but it, it is technically illegal. So be sure if you're out there sourcing oil for your products, um, that if they're sending you a federally legal product, less than 0.3, it is going to be a massively diluted product. And so, you know, I see generally, you know, there's a price point on raw crude that is hot. That price point then when you dilute it down, you dilute it down to almost a factor of 10. So, you know, if you're paying 9,000 for uh, a liter of raw crude that has, you know, your 60 to 95% CBD or whatever, um, is also going to have that higher THC component, so they dilute it down. So when they sell you that diluted oil, you're going to make a whole lot less product from a liter of raw crude that has not been bioremediated or not been remediated for THC. So be sure when you're negotiating contracts with people, uh, if that's your, your, your industry, that, that you're looking at and understanding, are they sending me hot raw crude or are they sending me diluted crude? that I need to buy 10 liters to get the same volume that I would otherwise get in that hot liter crew. And I think it's important there too is, I, I, there, is there are processes to remove the THC but leave the other minor cannabinoids in, in there as well. And that product is then gonna be THC remediated but the minor cannabinoids that people are very interested in and terpenes can still be there. But that's gonna probably be significantly more expensive of a product because it takes a lot more processing to create. But that would be kind of your true THC-free, legal, but high-potency product um, that you could get. So if you're really interested in like, the entourage effect or things like that, and you want all of the cannabinoids there, and you don't want it diluted, that's like a specific thing you would need to look for and look at the you know, analysis of the product, make sure the cannabinoids are there, and it's not just been diluted. So, but diluting is common. Actually, I got one comment on that. Um, we're seeing a lot more of that now. So yeah, a lot of people are inserting uh, a CO2 um, TH or terpene removal process uh, pre-primary uh, ethanol uh, process. And we're seeing more and more of that. So they're having now um, very expensive uh, CO2 equipment that will actually then pull out the terpenes. And before you, of course, are stripping out the active ingredients through, let's say, the primary ethanol process. So at the end, they can then reformulate as an add back in those terpenes. And I believe that's, is that full spectrum? I believe that's full spectrum. I'm actually on a panel tomorrow about this. I would say that there's no real definition of full spectrum. Okay. Like there, there's no, certainly no government definition. There's certainly no scientific definition. It's kind of up to whoever, you know, up to the community to decide like, does full spectrum have one cannabinoid in terpenes? Does it have 
multiple cannabinoids and terpenes? Does it have plant fatty acids? Does it have chlorophyll? Like, there's not an actual definition there. So that's another thing if you're hearing full spectrum to at least be clear on what the person selling you to it to you is is meaning by the word full spectrum or broad spectrum. Like, there's no real definition, I would say. So give me one second when we'll get to some <laughs> questions here, because it was uh, another topic where we were talking about legality. The one thing I wanted to throw in there is everybody, I don't know, you know, not everybody here is from Indiana, so the importance of understanding what you can handle and what you can't. Um, with having a hemp license, that does entitle license holders to potentially have a space between 0.3% THC concentration and what the state designates where they're allowed to apply for remediation and be able to take that out. But that doesn't mean that having that that company can take that hot um, extract and, and ship it around or send it to people who don't have their licenses. So I would say make sure that if you're a uh, if you have an end product that you're buying ingredients that are already considered legal and know your state's definitions. Um, some people, some states are looking at. Uh, less than 0.3% delta-9 is the definitive aspect, THC delta-9, whereas in Indiana, it's less than 0.3% THC delta-9 and its precursors, because THCA, when decarboxylated, turns into delta-9. So be aware of your state's laws with shipping and receiving and all those, and all those aspects. And while we're talking about legality, one thing I think that we wanted to mention as a panel is to kind of talk on when you have companies like our company and some, some of the uh, members up here have companies with end products, um, what can they say? You know, what, when we're talking about these hemp-derived products, what can they tell you um, and how is that regulated so that you know um, what kind of information you're getting? Because Full Spectrum has a bunch of different definitions to a bunch of different people. So did you want to touch base on that? Like, yeah, um, you know, obviously we're working in 50 different states with oftentimes they all have different uh, requirements for labeling. Um, but you know, coming from regulated industries like food and supplements, there's you know, certain things you want to look for on the label. And, and you know, obviously the, the number one thing is that the label is truthful and not misleading. Um, and, and that's number one. But number two is also, does it meet the state requirements for the information that needs to be on there? Um, and sometimes these two things can be conflicting. You know, for example, if a product, if a hemp product contains CBD, but then the, the state says, well, you're not allowed to market CBD, well, then companies have to decide, well, how do they, how do they label that and still be transparent enough uh, and, uh, and, and not be false and misleading and at the same time uh, meet state regulations. And so you see a lot of different ways that, that labels uh, um, uh, can, be, can be done. Um, you know, personally, I, I feel it'll be a, it'll be a good day when uh, all 50 states are on the same boat uh, in terms of federal regulations, because not only easier for business, uh, but also uh, a lot better for consumers, uh, because we'll have rules, you know, that are applicable in foods. For example, uh, you can't add anything to your uh, to your product that's not declared on the label. So we have a thing called an ingredient list, and that you see on all your food products. This is a federal requirement to list everything you add to it. And so oftentimes with, uh, with a product like CBD that isn't really under a, a particular regulatory umbrella federally, um, you see a lot of companies who might be adding things or talking about technologies where you look at it and you say, well, they must be adding something to it to, to come up with these claims, uh, but they're not declaring it. And, and that could be unsafe for people who have uh, allergies to, to certain uh, substances or uh, sensitive for whatever reason to, to ingredients. Um, and then the other side you're looking at is uh, what is the THC content of this product? Well, if a company is, doesn't mention any, doesn't list, say anything at all about it, we well, got a question. Well, has it been tested? Um, and, and at least in Indiana, here we have one of the one of the uh, better laws where you have to have a QR code on the, on the label, and then that QR code goes directly to a test report that's online that uh, should sh uh, 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 prove that THC is is less than than 0 0.3. And so you have um, uh, those types of things, but uh, even when you say THC-free, well, what does that mean? Uh, you know, chances are there's at least one molecule of THC floating around this room somewhere. Um, um, so, so we're looking at, okay, what does THC-free mean? And, and nobody's defined that yet. Is it less than 0.0, 0 0.1? Or is it down to the limit of detection of the lab? Yeah. And, I so. would, and I would say my 
my two cents on that is most labs limit of detection is roughly 0.1 to 0.15% by mass. And so anything below that 0.15, 0.1, depending on the lab, will show up as zero. And so that's, that is what is, I guess, it's not officially, but that's what's currently being sold as uh, uh, THC free. So, so as the labs develop, so there's official methods in process with AOAC and their limit of detection go is going down to 10 parts per million, yeah. which is 0.001%. So, so what is the threshold? And then from regulatory side, how do we define THC free? And, and to me, it would be a lot nicer to, to say, okay, the number of THC tests in this product is X. Yeah. And that way people can make a decision on, on, on whether the product is right for it, them. I completely agree with that. I also think labs should be, because a lot of the labs that are actively testing for potency um, have not gone through their full like ISO accreditation. There's a, a few and GMP validation, so they're not like up to the par of the labs that test your normal food products. But like the variance in potency tests can be plus or minus three to five percent. We've seen, and they don't report that variance. So you get a 95% CBD. It could be 100%. Could be 90%. And you send that sample to them over and over, and you'll get varying numbers. And it would be useful for consumers and formulated everyone to see that variance. But they're not required to at this point in time. So. I w wanted to just touch on three different parts of what we just <laughs> number. So number one, for me, nomenclature, uh, full spectrum oil really has to have everything. It has to have all of the cannabinoid complexes, but as we know, you're not completely remediating all THC from CBD. Uh, so tip typically I refer to oil where the THC has been removed as broad spectrum because we don't want it's really important that we all start talking about the same thing. And if we're all using sort of different nomenclature, it, it starts to get lost. And so I think that we would love to see standardization of terms so that we can start to have clarity on those issues. But just for you, typically I'll refer to full spectrum oil as THC containing oil versus a broad spectrum oil where it's been removed. And then any other type of oil where you've removed a lot of the other cannabinoid complexes too will fall into that broad. Uh, the second thing is on one of the things that we were just touching on is traceability. There is no traceability for hemp right now. So in cannabis, whoever buys my product can know exactly where it was grown, when it was cut down, when it was tested. There is not that same sort of tracking program for, for CBD. He, uh, Blake mentioned, you know, his QR codes, they can at least get back to a COA. Oftentimes those COAs can, can provide you a, a pretty good wealth of information about where that plant came from. But then there's also, there's no requirement for a company to tell you, uh, you know, exact numbers on things. So, you know, one of the frustrating things for me as a, as a healthcare person is, People make claims about their CBD as far as even just the concentrations and we know that when we've tested those products almost none of them actually come back as that. Um, and so for businesses when you're looking at where you're sourcing your products from and everything else, do some digging into where they're, you know, if you're, if you're buying directly from a manufacturer or if you're buying biomass from a farm. You want to do some digging into those those places where it comes from. And if they won't tell you, if they won't tell you, if you say like you know, where hemp come from? Is it registered with the state? Can I see a COA? Can I see residual solvent? If they don't tell you that, I would say don't buy it from them, right? Like if they're going to not tell you because they're not required to, sure. But that's good practice, I think, at, at this point in the industry. So it, edu and the, education and transparency, yeah. I would agree. Yeah, and then last point is on the labeling. Um, don't make any claims about any therapeutic potential of that plant because you're going to start to attract the eyes of the FDA really quick, the DEA. They're going to come down on your company's heart. So be very clear on your labeling. Um, if you're using hemp seed oil versus hemp, make sure you're being clear about that. I've seen a product by Sephora that claims cannabis on their label and then you dive into it and it's actually hemp seed oil. It's scary that companies are talking about using cannabis in their cosmetic creams that aren't even close to being a cannabis product. Um, and the fact that the FDA hasn't come down on them or even approved that label is 
beyond me, but uh, so just be careful about what you put on your labels. Don't make any therapeutic claims and, and try and be as accurate as you possibly can as to what your product is. And that, I think that's why you can see that when it comes to uh, labeling, you know, companies really can't, unless you do a clinical trial, um, you can't even, you know, our company can't say, if you say, hey, I've got arthritis, will this product work? My first, my first answer is, I can't make a product claim. We haven't studied that. We can't even say, start with 5 milligrams, start with 10 milligrams, because to have um, a dose would imply that we've studied that dose in a specific type of patient or person, customer. Right, so, so anybody, we always promote that, you know, your good companies are going to be transparent, they're going to promote education, um, and they're going to they're gonna be uh, legal with the way that they promote. So that those are important aspects. Speaking of education, since we're here for your education and there were some, um, some more questions, let's make sure we knock those out in the last few minutes that we have. Somebody on this side of the room first. Yes, sir? Um, yeah, it was interesting because what you actually said was that um, the broad spectrum is what the FDA is known going for because they're claiming it's illegal if you say don't quote that FDA that's that is my no no no, no, no. I, I know this okay um, the other thing too is actually the language and the way everything should be done is according to dietary supplements so you can't say arthritis but you can say may pr promote joint health you can actually talk about dosing if you're talking about dosing where it's not a specific condition and if you look at the FDA letters that have come out the warning letters they're either attacking, well, they're correctly doing it, the products because they don't have the amount of CBD in it or they're making drug claims. So that's kind of the two mm -hmm. things. So even though the FDA hasn't actually gotten to the point where they're saying, this is food regulations, this is drug regulations, and this is dietary supplement, it's probably safer to stay with dietary supplement regulations because that's what the FDA is kind of used to. Uh, there's some obvious uh, complexity, obscurity to all of the policies that the government and regulatory authorities are writing about this. Um, and I think that we've seen that recently. I, I think a lot of people looked at that farm bill that was passed in December as kind of a, a, a free-for-all then on, on, on CBD. A couple of issues that that created though. Uh, so someone like uh, Jake can, or, or Greg can pull in this biomass that has its less than 3% THC, but as they're making their products, they've now concentrated in no oil that's 2.5% THC. Technically, that's illegal now. <laughs> and so you've got this supply chain that takes a legal product, makes it into an illegal product, and then makes it back into a legal product. So there's a lot of complexity in the law in general, and I think one of the, the issues that you bring up is they haven't characterized CBD as a nutritional supplement yet. They haven't, and, and one of the things recently that we've seen in terms of CBD products being taken off shelves is now that we've shown that it has therapeutic value, it's considered a drug. When you put that into a food product now, now you've adulterated a food product with a drug and that's become illegal and, and the FDA has demonstrated some authority to remove those products from shelves. And yeah, and that the drug aspect of it really comes in with, because they approved, the FDA approved Epidiolex, which is the CBD drug form, which now means that they've approved it as a drug, they've admitted it has therapeutic potential, but now it opens up the gate to regulate all CBD as a drug because there's also legal precedent for that with other extracts being regulated as drugs. So, and the head of the FDA just stepped down like two weeks ago, so it's very much a chaos at this point. But. And, yeah, and, and it'll be interesting where it goes, and like I think there's probably lobbyists on both sides arguing for, you know, that's out of uh, my control. I have a slide uh, about this in my afternoon talk at 2.30 where we ask what the top 10 questions to ask your supplier. Uh, but the, the, one of the slides says, well, what is hemp? And it says, well, it could be a supplement, could be a food, could be a cosmetic, could be a fiber, uh, could be marijuana, could be an approved drug. So, so it's, a lot of it's about intended use. Um, you know, I haven't seen anything that's so complicated regulatory-wise uh, with that respect at this point. Um, so so it, it'll be interesting to see how it all, all boils down. But definitely, you know, the form, you know, whether it's a tincture or a capsule, I mean, that's not a food. But then if you put it in a beverage, is, does that mean that's a food? Uh, and then what requirements does it have to meet? Uh, because foods generally aren't standardized for a certain compound, whereas you don't want to put too much of CBD into a drink. So. 
So there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity there in terms of um, you know how do you regulate this uh, this plant. Sure, one quick thing I want to comment on, which he mentioned, which was very brief, but is something that every client is concerned with, and I've no answer for. Um, within every single hemp extraction process train is a illegal phase of the process train. Uh, it is completely illegal, and it's normally going to be all the way from crude to basically the final distillation portion where a lot of people will remediate in distillation. So if you were to like carve out your facility and look at your you know, design, you're gonna have the entire front end be completely legal, and then all of a sudden, right at this point in your process train, you now have a product that's over the threshold. And no one's been able to address this. Um, every client's operating like this is totally fine. Large ag companies are getting into this game and they're going straight forward with, hey, we're just going to destroy the THC the minute, you know, after you remediate, you have either in the remediation phase destroyed it, or very more often you've isolated it, and now you have to have it set for destruction. <laughs> so it's 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 very um, again. I'm not a lawyer, and that we work with a lot of lawyers. At some point, there needs to be some method of addressing that one, especially since um, the larger players are now large food companies. I mean, we've got clients that are giant grain companies, and they're just coming in saying, "Great, let's just go for it, full hog," and there's a, just a giant hole there that um, there's no answers for. So, so we're technically at time, but since we started a couple minutes late, is there any other questions that are really regarding um, pertaining to the topic of hemp-derived and different cannabinoids in that aspect that are out there? And if not, are there any other questions in general? Yes, ma'am. particular industry, are you um, participating in trying to get the regulations straight? Um, I know a lot of times with FDA claims, you've got to have like 95% of the label claim, and there's just seemingly, from what you're sharing, such an inconsistency. So are you, any of you, participating in beginning to help this process? Because, you know, just understanding it, it is complicated enough, and the processing is complicated too, but if we don't have label claims, that it just is very interesting. So, so this would be a good, uh, good end question. So everybody can kind of go down and say what they're involved in, and and that way everybody has an idea. When you're looking at quality companies, you know, when I tell people when they're first looking for a product, first look at the company. Start with a quality company. So this would get to give you guys some ideas, maybe of the type of organizations that are out there to be involved in. Yeah. So we internally have a chief compliance guy who's you know a lawyer is trained and is trying to make everything we do compliant with what we think the FDA will do so if it's a nutraceutical or food grade like get it up to a GMP certification get ISO accredited that's what normal food and nutraceutical manufacturers have to do so internally we're, we're doing that um, we also are transparent with COAs, um, residual solvents, potency, heavy metals, all of those things. We could, will tell you that we're getting our hemp from, you know, licensed farms. So we are very transparent in that sense. And then we're with the, I think we're members of the National Hemp Association, I believe. And then um, we like try to talk to our local state legislators to tell them what we think would be useful in labeling wise, like making those things clear. So from a, 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 an action standpoint I'm uh, my company and myself are members of the NCIA the National Cannabis Industry Association uh, which is the largest lobbying organization for cannabis uh, on a federal level um, I do federal lobby days with them so that'll happen in May uh, we'll be back in federal offices discussing these topics and and the complexity around cannabis and, and hemp in general uh, with officials. I'm also a member of the OCA, the Oregon Cannabis Association. Uh, we also lobby both state and federal, so I'll actually go back and lobby again in D.C. in June with the OCA. Um, I was just down in Salem, the capital of Oregon, uh, lobbying for some very concrete state regulation issues that we need to address in the industry. Um, and, you know, and then I participate in educations like this and, and all over. Um, we're kind of a little bit weird in this regard. Um, so we're kind of more of a code company, uh, and code being um, international fire code, international building code, and um, OSHRAE, um, Association for Mechanical Engineers. So we're members of all those. We're also members of the NCIA, the uh, 
Hemp Industry Association and a bunch of others I'm probably forgetting. Um, sorry. <laughs> but as far as writing regulation, the only kind that we're normally invited to write is, you know, uh, building code implementation, fire code implementation. Um, when it comes to the certification, we have been invited by uh, SGS to work on a project for um, more universal certification requirements. Um, we also, of course, work on every product now in hemp with uh, GMP, CGMP, EU GMP, uh, ISO 9001, and uh, sometimes even people are talking about FISMA, which is not even yet a thing, but that's potential. So uh, compliance is normally designed in on projects from the word go. Um, but yeah, we would love to work more on labeling, but just because of our background, no one's going to say, hey, let's get a bunch of engineers to talk about labeling. <laughs> but building systems, absolutely, that, that's, that's kind of where we go. Yeah, it's, it's a really important question you, you asked, and, and there's a lot of people working on, on this uh, from the technical side, you know, making sure that methods uh, are accurate and, and precise and that you can uh, uh, zero in on, on that amount of THC uh, from good manufacturing practices, making sure products are made in high quality and safe. Uh, so I'm on several t technical committees from uh, AOAC International for testing, ASTM International for standard setting for SOPs, and production and testing. Uh, I helped with the U.S. Roundtable Technical uh, Committee drafting the, the, the first um, uh, re, uh, uh, round of, of technical guidance. And so, yeah, there's um, just when we go to a lot of these meetings, there's thousands of people working on this from a technical side. And then, um, like these guys are, uh, lobbying is, is really important. <coughs> and education of, of regulators and, and Congress people is, is, is so key because uh, even now, so many people still think hemp is the same thing as marijuana, and it's and it's really not. And you know, the law was set uh, on an arbitrary uh, um, a point of, of 0.3, and and nobody told hemp that it can't uh, contain more than that. So, so you know, we have nature, and then we have this sort of arbitrary point, and so that's that's the um, the sort of rub or tension that that we're in right now. And and well, well we're going to be out of time. We're going to be out of time, so we can catch them afterwards. Um, if that's if that's all right, I was, and I was going to say, is Dream Nutrition? We have board seat on the Indiana Hemp Industry Association, part of Midwest Hemp Council, and the uh, Hemp Industry Association, the National Association, to name a few. So I wanted to encourage everybody: if you want to stay in touch with what's going on in your state, find your local. Like here, it's Indiana Hemp Industries Association, right? Find your local state-driven. Um, uh, associations and then understand and if you follow their social media especially you'll see the times when they're at the state houses when they are lobbying when there's testimonies happening so that if there those are things that you want to be involved in there are those organizations but this time we gotta have to go ahead and wrap it we'd like to thank um, Blake and Dan Jake and James for uh, uh, moderate or being on this panel and uh, thank you all for attending Thanks.